Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and can be found on page 735 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. I hope the majority of you that are sitting here today were able to at least attend one of the prior sessions that we've had this weekend uh, with Christopher and his parents. Um, If you've attended that and I'm sure you've been blessed. It's been just great to have uh, Christopher and his parents with us this weekend, and it's just been very uh, insightful and encouraging to hear uh, his teaching and sharing with us. Um, for those of you who weren't able to make it to any of the sessions, I just wanted to briefly introduce uh, Christopher. Um, Christopher, I mean, it's, it's just an amazing story, and, and there's so much to tell, but just very briefly, you know, Christopher was... Uh, a typical person, probably like many of us who grew up in uh, a Chinese home that uh, was encouraged to play piano and study hard and get good grades in school. And, and he did well in college and was on the uh, fast track uh, in dental school to become a dentist. But um, during his time in college and, and dental school, he uh, was a practicing homosexual. He was uh, doing drugs, and he was also a, a drug dealer. And uh, when he was in dental school, his world came crashing down because he was arrested for drug distribution and uh, thrown in jail. And during his time in jail, uh, you know, God just really took hold of him and uh, just changed his life. And his story is just a powerful story of transformation of how God took um, this person who was a practicing homosexual, a drug addict, drug dealer, and through his amazing love and amazing grace uh, turned Christopher into someone who is now uh, just an instrument 
for his use. Uh, Christopher uh, teaches at Moody Bible Institute. He um, travels around the world to speak. He has a heart particularly for those who uh, struggle with issues of sexuality and um, with HIV AIDS. And uh, just if you've gotten a chance to interact with him, you just know that he's just a very personable and, and warm guy. And so it's just great to have him. Um, before I invite him up to speak, I also want to, if you didn't get a chance to yet, to int- meet his parents and introduce them and, and see who they are. I think they're sitting in the back. Uh, his parents, Leon and Angela, uh, have been a blessing to the Chinese congregation. If you're here, can you stand up? You're here. Thank you. We've just, we've just heard wonderful things about their sharing on the Chinese side and how they have been such a blessing to our Chinese congregation and, and just the, the, the transparency at, at which they have been able to share their struggles of, as you can imagine, and, and the heartaches of just dealing with a son who is a, is a convict, was homosexual, was doing drugs, and just how they've shared life lessons that God has taught them uh, through that experience. Uh, but I want to maximize Christopher's time, so I'll invite him now to share with us. Please help me welcome Christopher. Good morning. Well, this morning we're going to look at a Christian response to homosexuality. And I have to say, generally, the way that Christians are perceived on approaching this issue of homosexuality is not very positive. Uh, there's a book that's called Unchristian. Anyone heard of that book before? It's written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. I think it's a very interesting book. It looked at how young Americans viewed the church. And what they found was quite staggering. It was not very uh, positive and quite negative. What they found was that um, the church was viewed to be all these things. Um, it was viewed to be, maybe if we could put that up there, um, confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. That's 91% of those outside the church believe that they are um, anti-homosexual. That we might as well say everyone outside the church is viewed to be anti-homosexual. Whereas in the second column, it says 80% of those who've been raised within the church, that would be most of us, um, 16 to 29 years old, whether in high school, college, uh, 8 out of 10 of us, this is according to the study, view that the church is anti-homosexual. And I want us to know what it doesn't say. It does not say anti-homosexuality, which I could kind of understand, you know, that maybe, uh, you know, this is pertaining to the issue that we don't believe that God blesses homosexual relationships, but it doesn't say that. It says that the church is being perceived as anti-homosexual. Three letters, I-T-Y. We might think, what's the big difference? Well, I think it's a big difference. One refers to the issue, and the other refers to the person. And I would hope that we would realize as followers of Christ that God is not against people. He's for people. He's for us turning from our ways, turning from our sins and turning to him. But he's not against people. He's for people. And so neither should we. But we must realize 
that someone's perception is their reality. And so, though it may not be what we believe in, but we are perceived as the church as being against gay people. So this morning, I want us to kind of put out all those things that we kind of have thought about homosexuality and hopefully take on a fresh perspective and hopefully hear from God. I mean, there's many ways that I can approach this issue of homosexuality. Politically, looking at policy that's, you know, wanting to be passed in laws, sociologically, psychologically, developmentally, many different ways. But I want to be very upfront with you that the way that I want to approach this issue of homosexuality is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ, I want that to be our foundation, where we go and where we land. Because I think that should be our guiding light with everything. Um, And so this morning, I I want us to then, uh, looking at the gospel of Luke and the parable of the Good Samaritan, help that guide us to a Christian response to homosexuality, a redemptive response to homosexuality. The Good Samaritan uh, parable here in Luke chapter 10 is preceded by Jesus being tested by someone who knew the law very well. And he said, and who is my neighbor, right? I mean, he first asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to the question, well, you know the law, what is written in the law? And he says, love God, love your neighbor. And then the, the, uh, the lawyer, the expert in the law, asks this question, The question, who is my neighbor? And this person, he's not asking to see, oh, who are all the people that I can hurry up and run out and show compassion upon and love? That's not what he's asking. He's really wanting to get some justification for limiting all the people that he should love. So he tests Jesus, and Jesus knew this. I mean, if I was Jesus, I probably would, you know, called lightning bolt down and kind of fried him like, you know, bacon, which for a Jew wouldn't be very good. Um, but um, I'm not God, um, and nor am I Jesus, and thank God. Uh, so Jesus gives this wonderful parable, one of the probably most well-known parables, uh, the Good Samaritan parable. And, and this, this parable is so well-known, there's many hospitals that are named after this, this parable. There's many ministries that are named after this parable. Um, But I find it interesting because, I mean, as most of us know, a man went along. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was robbed. And then a priest and a Levite walked by and passed right by him. And a Samaritan stops, takes care of him, takes him to an inn, pays the price, and and does all these extravagant things. And what I think is always so amazing is how Jesus has his way of taking a story and turning it on its head. How does he do this? Now listen carefully. If I was telling this parable, or what I was expecting when I read this parable for the first time was that Jesus would ask, who of these three people, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, looked at the man at the side of the road as the neighbor? Let me say that again. I expected Jesus to ask, Who of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, looked at the man at the side of the road as the neighbor? That's not what Jesus asked. Let's look at what Jesus asked. 
In verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Completely opposite to what I expected. Why in the world did Jesus do that? I believe he did that for two reasons. One reason, which might be a little bit uh, more expected. Many of us know that Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were unlovable. So in a sense, Jesus is saying that who what must we love? Well, we must love the unlovable. But second, I think it's even more profound. I think, as Jesus was telling this, he was saying that the, the Samaritan is the neighbor... Well, if the Samaritan is the neighbor, who would, in this parable, who would the lawyer be of these characters? I believe the lawyer would be represented by the man at the side of the road left half dead. And what's the significance of that? I believe Jesus is telling him and implying that the lawyer is really like the man left half dead at the side of the road. And so when Jesus says, go and do likewise, I believe Jesus isn't saying, go and do like the Good Samaritan, like because we're just so good, and we just do good things because we're so good. I mean, does that sound like the gospel? No. And often that's the message that we get. Go and do like the Good Samaritan. But I think that's getting the message wrong. I believe what Jesus is saying is that not so much that we need to be like the Good Samaritan, but we are like the man left half dead at the side of the road. Because think about this. If you were that man left half dead at the side of the road, someone showed you compassion, you have no idea who it was because you were unconscious, they bandaged you up, put, them, put you on their donkey, took you to an inn, paid the price, you came out of your coma, and you found out that someone paid the price for you, as you recovered, would you not be changed? Would you now have a new lease on life and look at everybody completely differently? That you would see every person as someone that you can show compassion to. Someone that you could love. So I believe Jesus is not saying, go and do good and be good because we are so good. He's saying, we are like that man left half dead at the side of the road, broken, beaten by the world, by our circumstances, by our sin. And because someone has shown us compassion, Jesus, we go and show compassion out of the gratefulness of our own heart. That, I think, is the gospel. And so as we approach this issue of homosexuality, I believe the first step before we do anything is to have the right attitude and to recognize our own brokenness, that we are like the man left half dead at the side of the road, that we must be convicted of our own brokenness, of our own sin. Because I'll tell you, as I lived as a gay man, I felt the church was telling me that homosexuality was the worst sin that somehow Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gay people. That 
that gay people deserved a hotter place in hell. But that's far from the truth. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. There's one unpardonable sin, and that's grieving the Holy Spirit, not homosexuality. And yet often in church, we kind of overlook sins, don't we? Gossiping, you know, the prayer chain, or, um, you know, jealousy, or, or even adultery. You know, but heaven forbid, if it's homosexuality, then we really need to do something. And so we have kind of put this tear on sin when God doesn't look at it that way. So homosexuality is not the worst sin. And yet I know some people, when you think about homosexuality, it's very uncomfortable because you kind of feel, when you think about it, it's just disgusting. And you know, actually, that feeling of disgust, I think, is a great reminder for us. That feeling of disgust that you have is probably just a fraction of what God must feel when he looks at our own sin. And maybe even more because we know better and we have the Holy Spirit. So our sin is just as odious in the eyes of God. And hopefully, as we approach this issue of homosexuality, first of all, with conviction, we will approach it with an attitude of humility. Because our desire is to draw people to Christ. I mean, have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through a holier-than-thou attitude? You know, oh, I came to Christ because this old lady, she was so pompous. No. It's always, you know, she was gentle and humble and kind and compassionate. So in the same way, let us approach this issue with conviction, with humility, as we hope to draw people, whether they're gay or straight, to Jesus. So, convicted is the first point. Um, Second, as we look back on this parable, uh, you know, we see these the other two people who are involved in this parable, the priest and the Levites. And, you know, these two people, they knew the law very well. And yet, as they approached this man left half dead at the side of the road, what happened? They walked right by, even though they knew the law, even though they knew, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, in other words, they were living inconsistent to what they knew. They were living inconsistent to the love of God and the, to the word of God, to the truth of God. And I believe when it comes to homosexuality, we also have been a little bit inconsistent. So, therefore, we must be consistent. Consistent regarding three things. First of all, regarding relationships. Because for people in the gay community, relationships is so important. Whether it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's marriage, it's so important. And that's also part of our culture in the U.S. Most movies that we watch coming out of Hollywood, they usually begin with a man or a woman who's single and miserable. And then they meet someone, they kind of hook up, you know, right? And the end of the movie, they're so happy, right? You know, and, and we kind of instill that into our children, right? All the, when, when you guys remember as kids, the fairy tales, how do all fairy tales end? They get married and they live happily ever after, right? I mean, we, we don't get the 10-year checkup or the 20-year checkup. I mean, we, you know, we pray, we hope that they're still happy. But, you know, the reality is marriage is not where we get our true contentment. Christ is where we find our true contentment. Not marriage. And don't get me wrong. I believe we must lift up the beauty of marriage. But you know what we've done? We have done that at the expense of singleness, to the point that singleness now has become this curse. It's a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're stuck with singleness. 
But what does the Bible say? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Many of us would agree, oh, amen, marriage is a gift. But now singleness, on the other hand, whew, that's a calling. You really have to be special to, to endure that. But I know, I've spoken to married people, and I know marriage, it takes work. It takes giving of yourselves, loving sacrificially, loving unconditionally. And husbands, our job is to lay our lives down for our wives. So tongue-in-cheek, I say marriage, now that's a calling. Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. And so, don't get me wrong, I'm not lowering one below the other or trying to raise one below the other. I just think biblically is having a balanced view that as we lift up the beauty and gift of one, we lift up the beauty and gift of the other. Because that ministers to all, all, especially those who are dealing with sexual brokenness. As singleness will be a reality for many for a period in their life or maybe for the rest of their life. And that's okay. Did you know that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that there will be no marriage in heaven? Did you know that? So I don't know, you know, I don't want to ruin your Sunday, but we're going to be single in eternity. But you know why? Because we will be wed to the Lamb of God. We'll be wed to the Lamb of God. So singleness is not the temporary state before marriage. I like to say that marriage is a temporary state before eternity. So we must be consistent regarding relationships and consistent regarding sexuality. Many of us think, well, what is it that God calls us to regarding sexuality? Well, that's obvious. It's heterosexuality. Really? Well, as I look at the term heterosexuality, which is a man-made, modern, sociological, psychological term, it's such a broad term that encompasses adultery, fornication, lust, all these things that the Bible clearly condemns. So, if heterosexuality is too broad of a goal for us to, to, to strive for, and it's, if we see that God's not calling us to homosexuality either, what is it that God is calling us to? Holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? Holy sexuality, I think, is one of two options. First, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite gender. Or... If you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence and celibacy. I don't have a term for that, and so I call that holy sexuality. And what I love about that is that it applies to all of us, male or female, whether if you have heterosexual feelings or homosexual feelings, young or old, we all need to pursue holy sexuality. I have a, a friend um, that I think helps illustrate this idea of holy sexuality. He lived as a gay man came out of homosexuality, was in ministry. Uh, he was not interested in girls, and so he was going to be single for the rest of his life. There was a young lady that he was in ministry with. She also came from a broken past. She had several abortions, and so she was kind of done dating guys, and she wanted to focus on a relationship with God. So they were able to be really close, and there was never any of that kind of weirdness that happens. Does he like me? Does she like me? And uh, they got to be best buddies. Well, after some time, he started noticing something, some things about her that he never noticed before in any other woman. Her hair. <laughs> and she smelled good. And she had curves. Well, he says puberty is hard going through once. Try going through puberty twice. Well, he got up enough courage, asked her on a date, and after some dating, he asked her to marry him. And on his wedding night, this is so cool. 
On his wedding night, he told his wife, Honey, I cannot explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. If God can bring two people together into that miracle of one union flesh, I believe he can provide all those things that those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship. Holy sexuality. So we must be consistent regarding um, relationship, sexuality, and change. I think when we think about change applied to homosexuality, we often think gay to straight, or at least no longer having those temptations, those struggles anymore. But do we apply those same principles to anything else? Let's just say I have a friend who was a drunk for years, comes to Christ, stops drinking for a long time. I talk to him and he says, I am still tempted to pick up a beer. I still have the urge to drink. Would I then say, you have not been changed? We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. Of course not. I actually think that the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he has to say no to his flesh and say yes to God. So change, it's not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Let me say that again. Change, it's not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. God never promises us that we won't be tempted. God never promises us that we won't struggle. You see, God's faithfulness is shown not by taking us out of our struggle, but by carrying us through. That's God's faithfulness. So we must be convicted. We must be consistent. But also, we need to be compassionate. I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and often I have some of my students that come and share with me that they struggle, that they struggle with same-sex attraction, and often they say, I've never told anyone. They've never told their parents, their best friends, their siblings. And sometimes they tell me things like, I hate myself. I wish I was never born. They're racked with guilt often wrestle with depression and have thoughts of suicide. That should change us. That should move us that people within the body of Christ somehow, for whatever reason, it might be just their perception, but feel like that they cannot be open with their burdens and to share it with another brother in the Lord or another sister in the Lord and feel like that their only answer might be death. That's why I, I do believe this is a big issue that often is a matter between life and death. So how can we, as a body of Christ, be a safer place, be a more compassionate place? Well, first of all, simply just expect that this is present here within the body of Christ, that we have others who might be wrestling with this issue of sexuality. Not be surprised that some of us are wrestling with sin, wrestling with our flesh, wrestling with temptations. I mean, is the church a place where we have it all together? 
Or is the church a place for broken, needy people? I'm going to be totally honest with you here. I am broken and needy, and I desperately need Jesus. Anyone else out there that needs Jesus? And so let us, hand in hand, not because we have all the answers, but because we are broken, but we know the Master Healer, and let's walk to Him. Because He has the answer, and He can make us whole. So expect that this is present here, but on the other hand, don't be overly suspicious. You know, when I came out to my mom before both of us, before our whole family came to Christ, I came out to my mom, I'm gay. For a period in there, she kind of was just suspicious of everyone. She thought like everyone was gay. Like, they're sitting so close together, maybe they're gay. You know, <laughs> he's wearing pink, I never knew. You know, I mean, her gaydar was going crazy. So, you know, don't be suspicious, don't be paranoid, but not be surprised that other people... You know, within the body of Christ, men, you know, our friends, people in our pews might be wrestling with this issue. Maybe they have a loved one who is uh, gay or lesbian. And let us have a desire to want to minister to the people because we all have our own issues. But on the other hand, don't stereotype either because often that can be hurtful. You know, it's sometimes thought, well, a gay man, you know, he's either a designer or a hairdresser, you know, or a lesbian, you know, kind of is real butch and wears leather and, you know, rides motorcycles. Or, you know, that's not true. Those are stereotypes. And often those can be hurtful. So just be careful with those. Second, know what is our position. Are we able to articulate what, uh, what we believe on this issue? What I'm talking about is not, it's a sin, don't do it. I'm talking about our desire to draw people deeper into relationship with Jesus surrendering all that they are, including their sexuality. We want to minister to the person and draw them to him. That's our position. That's our desire. You may, though, have someone that you are thinking of, that you are wondering, well, I, you know, I, I think they might be wrestling with this issue, and I want to let them know that I'm there for them. How do I bring it up? Don't. I mean, can you imagine if someone just kind of came up to you out of the blue and asked you, so... Um, do you struggle with homosexuality? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awkward? You know, that would just be, you know, really a, a way to change, um, I don't know, change things. So I just say, what you can do is emphasize your commitment to them. Tell them this. I thank God for you. I thank God that he put you into my life as a brother in the Lord, as a sister in the Lord. And I just want you to know that nothing you say or do can ever change our friendship. And do you know when you say that? What that does, it creates a safe place and invites them in. As a matter of fact, we should be doing that to all of our friends, no matter what the issue we might assume might be. So emphasize your commitment to them. And fourth, this is, this is also very important that I think is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, and, and it might have to kind of do more with our youth. And it has to do with the joking and the teasing and the bullying. Because I know when I was your age, when I was in junior high, grade school, high school, I was teased ruthlessly. Not just called all those names, you know, for being Chinese. You know, because I lived in Chicago in the suburbs where, like, we didn't have a lot of Chinese. I mean, it was, you know, I was kind of one in, I don't know, in several hundred. So they called me all these names. But not only did they call me all those names for being Chinese, 
But they also called me gay, fag, sissy, pansy, all those things. And certainly, you know, we say, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will ever, never hurt you. That is such a lie, right? Don't you know how a single word can crush a person for weeks? And so, so let us be proactive in saying no to the bullying, no to the teasing. Is that okay? Can we do that, kids? No more teasing, okay? Okay? No more teasing. I mean, can we be more creative? Instead of saying, that's so gay, you know what we can say? We can say, that's so Baptist, or that's so Presbyterian, you know? That's so Chinese, something like that, okay? So be more creative, but no more joking on, the, on this issue. So, not only um, as we, we need to be compassionate, um, just as that Samaritan was, but you know what's so amazing? That I, I believe in this parable with the Good Samaritan, that the Samaritan was almost like the Jesus figure. That Samaritan was the one who showed compassion upon this man left half dead at the side of the road, just as Jesus showed compassion upon us who were left half dead at the side of the road. And I believe that just as this Good Samaritan paid the price for this man to be healed, Jesus paid the price for us to be healed with his own life. Jesus was complete in his compassion, complete in how we interacted and, and reached out to us. So in the same way, we also must be complete and this pertains to our message. I mean, because we are people of the truth. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What is the truth? Well, many of us will say, well, that's easy. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. And that's true. But do you know what we do? We often put a period at the end of the sentence and we say nothing more. And do you know what that is equivalent to? That's equivalent to giving someone the one spiritual law tract. Have you ever seen the one spiritual law tract? It goes like this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that ain't good news. That's bad news. And yet that's the message that we're giving to the gay community. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why people in the gay community want nothing to do with the church. Because we're giving them an incomplete gospel. We're giving them an incomplete truth. And do you know, telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie. And so what is the complete truth? Well, there's a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul gives this whole list of sins. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he lists these ten vices, these ten sins. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And too often, Christians, we will look at this passage and say, see, this passage says that gay people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Really? Well, how about all the other eight sins? Because if we're really honest we would realize that we are all condemned in that whole list. And so the result is, none of us inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. And yet, Paul does not stop there. Paul says this. He says, such were some of you. Let me say that again. Such were... Past tense. 
some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord and in the spirit of our God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is good news. That's news that we can declare from the rooftops to the gay community, to the straight community, to any community that needs to know about Jesus. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified in the name of our Lord and the spirit of our God. So let us, as we address this issue of homosexuality, be redemptive in our approach. Because people in the gay community, people, Christians who are struggling with the issue of homosexuality, their main issue is not homosexuality. Their main issue is to know Jesus and to fully surrender to him. So let us be redemptive. So how do we do that redemptively in our interactions? Well, I want to give some practical things here at the end. First of all, I want to show how we would minister in, reach in to Christians who are struggling with this issue, with same-sex attractions. And then after this, I want to show how, how do we reach out and share Christ with the LGBT community. So first of all, what would happen like after this weekend, weekend of talking about homosexuality? Let's just say you might have a good friend and they say, I, I need to share something with you. And they share with you that they struggle with same-sex attraction. Do you know what to do? Well, here's some things that I suggest. First of all, thank them. Thank them that they trusted you enough with this deep, dark secret that they kept hidden probably for years, maybe a decade or more. And finally, they got it out in the open and they trusted you with this. Thank them. Second, tell them they're not alone. Many Christians struggling with this issue feel like they're all alone, that no one can ever understand them. And tell them, though you may not understand all the details about homosexuality, you're willing to walk with them to Jesus. Third, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. Yes, our sexuality, especially when you're a teenager, in your 20s or 30s, sexuality can be so overwhelming. All we think about, relationships, intimacy. And yet, our passions, our desires do not define us. Christ does. So remind each other that our identity needs to be in Christ. And now fourth, be realistic. Don't just... Say, oh, you just read the Bible more, pray hard enough, and you can just pray away the gay. No, it's not that you can just kind of pray away our problems or just pray away our temptations. It's going to take surrender. It's not going to be easy. It will take digging into God's Word. It will take prayer. But that doesn't mean, then, that you won't be tempted. We will be tempted with our flesh. So don't give these false promises. Fifth, don't focus so much on the externals. You know, it used to be thought, oh my goodness, I need to, you know, fix this lesbian, get her, you know, to wear high heels and a a dress and, you know, she'll be straight in no time. No, that's focusing on the outside and God looks at the heart. And wouldn't it be amazing if the change was from the inside out, not from the outside in? Sixth, I believe a very important thing is that we need to encourage God-honoring relationships, friendships, intimate relationships with the same gender. See, what I needed most when I came out of homosexuality, as I was in seminary, I needed relationships with other men that were God-honoring, intimate. We, I had three guys that were on my floor, on my dorm floor, and we shared everything. We prayed together. We held each other accountable. And not one of them struggled with homosexuality. And often I thought, man, thank God I don't have their issues. 
But you know, when they were weak, I was strong. When I was weak, they were strong. That's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. I believe God put in us the desire for intimacy with the same gender that's God-honoring and non-sexual. But you see, often we kind of push that away. I mean, I think homosexuality is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. I think all sin is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. And so I believe that we need to encourage that. And I think that sometimes comes easier for ladies, right? You ladies can have a best girlfriend that you kind of hang out with all the time and get on the phone and talk and, and, and talk and, and, and talk. And, and, you know, guys, it's like five minutes is forever, eternity. But, you know, I think, guys, we need that. We need another man that can sharpen us, that can be that Jonathan or David to hold us accountable, that can be that intimate friend. That's God-honoring but non-sexual. So we need that. So how do we then reach out to the gay community, to the LGBT community? Some of you may not know this acronym, LGBT. That's not a sandwich that you can order at the restaurant. <laughs> LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Before I tell you what we should do, I want to say what we shouldn't do real quickly. Do not compare homosexuality to uh, addictions, to pedophilia, to murder. I mean, that's not a good way to try to win someone to Christ. Don't mention those sins and compare them with homosexuality because they don't see it as the same thing. Also, don't use these two words, lifestyle and choice, because that often is very offensive to people in the gay community because they don't see this as their lifestyle. They don't see this as something they chose. They see this as who they are. As I lived as a gay man, I saw my homosexuality as being on par with my race, with Chinese. Of course, I don't believe that anymore, but that's what I believed back then. And so to say that it's lifestyle can be very offensive. Also, don't use this phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Yes, that's how we try to reach out to them, but don't tell them that. Because often what they'll hear is hate. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people and, oh, I'll, I'll tell them what, what the Bible says and, and this is truth. But really, there is a time for truth, and that's usually not when you're debating with someone. Because you can never debate someone to Jesus. Wait for God to soften their heart when maybe they're more open to hear the truth of God. Second, uh, if that's what we shouldn't do, what should we do? And I'll just finish with this. First, pray. My mother prayed for me for seven years, fasted every Monday for seven years, and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Can you imagine if we actually mobilize the church to pray and fast for the gay community? We might actually have a revival breakout. Would that not be amazing? And so let us pray and fast for that. Second, listen. Listen to our friends. Often their stories will just break your hearts. Be quick to listen and slow to, uh, be quick to, listen and slow to speak. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to take them out to coffee or, or take them out for, to lunch. And certainly someone might accuse you, what are you doing eating with that gay person? But didn't, G, didn't the Pharisees accuse Jesus of eating with sinners? And how would those sinners know about Jesus if he didn't, they, he didn't hang out with them? Fourth, be patient and persistent. Don't give up. This will take time. Seven years for me was a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. And last... Be transparent. How do we share the gospel? I know it ain't easy. And though it may be hard to kind of take out that track and begin sharing with them the, the gospel, you know what you can do? Be transparent and share what God has done in your life lately. 
You shouldn't be the same as you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or 10 years ago. See, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I did not leave homosexuality because I found it to be so bad or so wicked or so dark. I left homosexuality because I found something better. And that's Jesus. We need to show a dying world that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, marriage, a job, career, your education. Jesus is better than all of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the best. And so let us, in our interactions, in our relationships, in our words, show to a dying world that Jesus is the best. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that it wasn't us who loved you first. You loved us before the beginning of time, before we even knew you. You knew our names, you counted the hairs on our head, and you called us to yourself. Help us, God, that in the midst of this issue of homosexuality, to reflect Jesus. Help us to show the world that Christ is better. We praise you and love you and ask this in the powerful name of Christ. The people of God said, Amen.